Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. April 2nd, 1917. Amidst the deadly conflict and trench warfare engulfing the European continent, President Woodrow Wilson went before a joint session of Congress to request a declaration of war against Germany. Among the many transgressions he cited was Germany's broken pledge to suspend unrestricted submarine warfare and its alleged efforts to entice Mexico into an alliance against the United States, hypothetically creating a North American theater for the expanding conflict. His declaration of intent to use American force, under conscription no less, ultimately resulted in 117,000 American deaths and 205,000 injuries. Wilson propounded that, quote, Armed neutrality is ineffectual enough at best. In such circumstances and in the face of such pretensions, it is worse than ineffectual. It is likely only to produce what it was meant to prevent. And it is practically certain to draw us into the war without either the rights or the effectiveness of belligerence. There is one choice we cannot make. We are incapable of making. We will not choose the path of submission and suffer the most sacred rights of our nation and our people to be ignored or violated. The wrongs against which we now array ourselves are no common wrongs. They cut to the very roots of human life. End quote. And only two short days later, the U.S. Senate voted in support of the measure to declare war on Germany and the Central Powers. Now skip ahead to March 18th, 2003. President George W. Bush, after a year-long drumbeat towards instigating war against Iraq, appears on television to formally present his intention to attack the Middle Eastern nation. After citing alleged possession of WMDs, a spurious link to al-Qaeda terrorism, and the brutal repression against his own people, Bush gave Saddam Hussein one last chance to surrender before he started Operation Shock and Awe, the modern application of blitzkrieg warfare. And Bush's declaration of hostilities would eventually result in a quarter million Iraqi civilian deaths, 8,000 contractor deaths, 7,000 American soldier deaths, 115,000 opposition fighter deaths, 370 journalistic deaths, and 600 humanitarian worker deaths. Bush Jr. went on to state that, quote, My fellow citizens, events in Iraq have now reached the final days of decision. For more than a decade, the United States and other nations have pursued patient and honorable efforts to disarm the Iraqi regime without war. That regime pledged to reveal and destroy all of its weapons of mass destruction as a condition for ending the Persian Gulf War in 1991. But should Saddam Hussein choose confrontation, the American people can know that every measure has been taken to avoid war, and every measure will be taken to win it. Americans understand the cost of conflict because we have paid them in the past. War has no certainty except the certainty of sacrifice. Yet the only way to reduce the harm and duration of war is to apply the full force and might of our military, and we are prepared to do so. If Saddam Hussein attempts to cling to power, he will remain a deadly foe until the end. In desperation, he and terrorist groups might try to conduct terrorist operations against the American people and our friends. These tacks are not inevitable. 
They are, however, possible. And this very fact underscores the reason we cannot live under the threat of blackmail. The terrorist threat to America and the world will be diminished the moment that Saddam Hussein is disarmed." End quote. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms a dark cast network show pursuing the historical truth at the nexus of politics and true crime. And today we will be visited by one of the greatest historical podcasters of our time. One who I admire in terms of the depth of his intellect, the unrelenting honesty of his analysis, the dedication to his craft, and the wealth of knowledge he brings to the world. I'm of course talking about C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, we will be comparing and contrasting the historical, political, and economic legacies of two of our most hated U.S. presidents, both of whom can rightly be described as criminals of the highest order. My personal arch-nemesis is George W. Bush, and C.J.'s is Woodrow Wilson. So we'll bat around their biggest crimes against the American people and the world, and let you decide who has been worse for the United States and its future. But to focus on Mr. Kilmer for a moment, he is a self-proclaimed Florida man and holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, the latter being from the University of Tennessee. And he used these credentials to teach history at the collegiate level for nearly 16 years. The primary topics of his courses were U.S. history, Western civilization, world history, and Floridian history. And hopefully he saved the textbooks for that last course because I'm going to need him to mail those up so that I can get a primer for my future home state. But in the summer of 2014, with almost no experience, budget, or even the benefit of a smartphone, he created the Dangerous History Podcast. A passion project for his more radical opinions that were too controversial for his lectures and classroom. But thankfully... He was a quick study, and he now has a back catalogue of almost 200 incredibly detailed and engaging episodes, of which CJ's podcast ranks among the top half percent in the world. And perhaps most famously, CJ's episodes focusing on the depraved and villainous legacy of Woodrow Wilson should be highlighted here. Mr. Kilmer recently released Part 10 of a years-long epic marathon thrashing of the idealist president, by dedicating a five-hour episode regarding Wilson's racism. Again, I cannot overstate just how important his work on Wilson is because of its relationship to the progressive ideology and the lasting mark that has left on American society ever since. But you'll learn a bit more about that once we delve into this episode. And though CJ admits it was a long and occasionally painful journey towards success, he finally reached a lifelong goal in the summer of 2022. Thanks to the support of his loyal listeners, CJ was able to quit his job in academia and become a full-time podcaster and online teacher. The latter referring to his recent course deployment for the Unregistered Academy. 
but he's been a recurring guest on the Tom Woods Show, The Survival Podcast, and has also appeared on Lions of Liberty, History Impossible, and Unloose the Goose. So check the show notes for links to CJ's Twitter and podcast, but you can find a lot of what you need at www.profcj.org. That is www.profcj.org. And though CJ self-identifies as a smartass, iconoclast, and a cynical critic of authority, he is also one of the most intelligent members of the informal liberty movement, one whom I am honored to welcome to my humble little show. So with all that in mind, I now present to you a conversation with Professor CJ Kilmer. Well, hello, Mr. Kilmer, and welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms. Hey, I'm very happy to be here, and thanks for inviting me on. No problem. And I was kind of hoping that the basic outline of this podcast could largely revolve around comparing and contrasting the presidencies of our respective executive enemies. Mine is George W. Bush, and for anyone who knows anything about you, yours is obviously Woodrow Wilson. So what we can hopefully do is break down the Wilson and Bush his, history and sort of let the listeners decide who was more villainous overall. Okay. So in regards to the categories, I'd, I'd kind of like to look at both of these depraved figures in terms of some ad hominem attacks. Uh, we can do their electoral records, uh, their foreign affairs footprints, maybe some economic legacy, institutional records. And if we have some time, you know, their social legacies. Okay. But, uh, but before we start all that, uh, on a lighter note, I first wanted to ask a couple of things because I know how obnoxious these things can sound coming from a Canadian, albeit an unwilling one who is, you know, a Canadian in name only. But so will you give me a red, white, and blue hall pass for this conversation? Sure. No problem. <laughs> okay. Because most Canadians have this unbelievably like anti-American inferiority complex and they never thank you guys enough for all the good that you do. And like on top of this, people here think they're superior and they'll kind of insist that they know how to shape your country better than you guys do. It's, it's like incredibly annoying, man. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of yeah, like yeah. a combination it, it seemed... of over, over education and underappreciation kind of thing, you know? Yeah. It, it strikes me as a little bit like the way, um, many Western Europeans are, uh, it seems like like Eastern Europeans tend to be more like rah, rah, rah for America, you know, I guess because they're, you know, they're later to join NATO. So they haven't yet quite the honeymoon hasn't worn off yet and they haven't quite realized what is really going on as far as that goes. Um, but, yeah, it seems like uh, Western Europeans and Canadians often have this um, superiority complex and, you know, everything is relative. So, yeah, I mean, I've got all kinds of uh, criticisms of my own country and whatever like that. But, you know, to hear, hear somebody um, who's happily, unlike yourself, happily living under uh, the Trudeau regime, <laughs> criticizing America in any way is uh, pretty <laughs> ridiculous. It's like, you know, great grading on a curve. Like, uh, I'd, I'd rather be here than there. Yeah, I mean, I do my part for trashing Trudeau as well. I mean, the guy's completely ridiculous. But anyways, all right. And uh, secondly, um, you're obviously an, all ex an expert in all things Wilson. So my, my son had a question, actually, and he was hoping you could shed some light on this. Did okay. Wilson have a presidential pet? 
Um, oh shoot. He, uh, I think he had some kind of dog. And to be honest with you, I don't really remember, uh, its name or any real details or whatever like that, but I'm pretty sure he had some kind of dog, but that's, that's the kind of thing I, I don't okay. usually <laughs> focus on. Um, you know, I, I usually focus on, um, the, you know, the real kind of like, I don't know, nuts and bolts stuff of you know, economic policies and wars and whatever like that. And in regard to Wilson, I would probably only bring the the dog or whatever pet he might have had up if there was some kind of like a, I don't know, a salacious story like that he, you know, once got caught beating the dog for some reason and, you know, <laughs> revealing that he's a closeted psychopath. Or, or, or you or named whatever. it Sambo, right? <laughs> All right. Um, and finally, before we get going, I guess, uh, I had a little pet theory about you and Woodrow Wilson that I was hoping you could clarify for us. Is it possible okay. that the main reason you hate the man so much is because he actually got the history PhD that you never did? Um, yeah, that's that's totally it. Uh, you got me. <laughs> you got me. Um, he is otherwise a fine uh, example of a president of the United States, and um, I actually endorse every decision he made. <laughs> all right, all right. Sorry about that. I had to throw that in. I, I also wanted to quickly ask you about, like, you see all these things online and different news articles about these, like, presidential ranking systems you see in the media. Like, do you subscribe to any of these? Like, are they useful? And w what kind of metrics are they using when they judge this? Yeah, the the typical presidential rankings are done by establishment academic historians usually, um, and sometimes also by kind of pop historians like uh, Michael Beschloss, who uh, you may know I absolutely despise and have nothing but contempt for. And it, it kind of doesn't even really matter because whether you're talking about more kind of pop historians who write popular history books or whether you're talking about people with some more uh, genuine academic credentials, you know, 90 to 95% of them, uh, no exaggeration, are going to be kind of establishment progressive Democrats. And they're going to use, even if they're not consciously listing their criteria for how they're ranking the presidents, they're typically going to use... Um, the metric of presidents who grabbed and exercised executive power most vigorously are better than presidents who showed restraint. And presidents, kind of as a, as a corollary to that, presidents who fight big wars tend to usually get ranked higher than presidents that keep the country out of war. Because, of course, war is a wonderful uh, playground to show that you're a decisive, inspiring leader. So typically uh, at the top of the list are going to be, you know, FDR, um, Abe Lincoln. Ah. They'll sometimes put George Washington pretty high up just because he was first. And certainly, um, you know, there were some things he did that I'm not a fan <laughs> of, like the way uh, he you know, dealt with the Whiskey Rebellion and just kind of let Alexander Hamilton um, run run things as far as that goes and some of his other policies. But in a lot of ways, I mean, Washington is um, by, again, grading on a curve, uh, grading by, 
by comparison, I mean, I'd take Washington any day over any of our recent presidents. That's that's for sure. Um, and so, yeah, you know, also usually ranked pretty highly, although not at the top, are going to be uh, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, those sorts of characters. And so, yeah, usually for most of the presidents that are in, Woodrow Wilson is often ranked as what they would call like near great or just a slight, you know, rung below great. And so typically, if you look at the presidents that they tend to rank very highly, it's guys who get the country into big wars. It's guys who mm-hmm. um, violate the spirit and letter of the Constitution most consistently. It's guys who do the most to grow the power of the federal government in general and the executive branch in particular. And meanwhile, presidents that are the opposite of those things tend to get ranked as either heh, so-so, or even downright bad. So typically... Um, presidents that I actually have some affection for, like Martin Van Buren, Grover Cleveland, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge. These sorts of guys are, you know, considered um, at best just sort of placeholder empty suits in between the dynamic, inspiring uh, leaders that get us into big wars. Um, And at worst, they're considered, you know, obstacles in the way of the inevitable progress of the modern democratic state. Okay, so essentially statism is one of the main metrics they use, how they advance the interests of the state? Yeah, yeah. Well, the I'll, I'll just say that the, the establishment American left, I don't know if you've ever read uh, like the textbooks that are used in, in American high school and university, the U.S. history books, but they're typically written as like a form of Whig history, a Whig with an H. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, you know, the original Whig historians were these British historians in like the 19th century who wrote about British history as if it was just this inevitable triumphal march of history of ever uh, increasing, you know, perfection of the British constitutional system. And that's that's how they portrayed all of British history going back to like before the Norman Conquest. Mm -hmm. And the American establishment left have their own Whig history where basically you know, there's this like inevitable march of progressivism from Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson through Franklin Roosevelt through Lyndon Johnson and, you know, the latest with um, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And yeah, there's the occasional temporary setback along the way. But the long arc of history is the inevitable triumph of basically what Woodrow Wilson would have called modern democracy. I see. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, I was hoping to do something a little bit counterintuitive to start our conversation. And uh, this is because we're going to be spending like an overwhelming majority of the time just trashing these former presidents. So I thought we could actually start by steel manning our respective enemies. So are you up for that? Yeah. So you mean I give a case for George W. Bush being worse and you give a case for Wilson being worse? I was kind of more thinking I'll give the steel man case for the Bush presidency as a force for good. And I can start if you want. Oh, okay. All right. I gotcha. Yeah, sure. So, so I'd start by saying like, and again, we're going to trash him completely, but I would say that despite all the controversies and criticisms, he was thrown like headfirst into a completely chaotic political environment following a national tragedy. Uh, He overcame his addiction issues in life. Uh, He seemingly, you know, to preserve his marriage and family. uh, And while he was in office, he did make 
resolute choices and stuck to them regardless of the critiques. Uh, he remained true to his principles. I, I know that's <laughs> a strange thing to say, but again, we're steel manning him. And though you can debate his failures, I think he had several accomplishments and positive aspects that you could defend if you were of the mind, like his national security maintenance. Uh, you know, he took an aggressive steps to combat terrorism, and these measures seemingly helped to prevent further attacks. Uh, his tax cuts, he stimulated some economic growth with that. Uh, his HIV and AIDS initiatives worldwide, that seems to have saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. And on the diplomacy front, uh, Bush kind of strengthened his relationships, like the American relationships with key allies like the Brit with Britain and Australia, and he played a, re a leading role in those Israel-Palestine negotiations. So I guess to that extent, and I, again, I'm stretching reality to say positive things about him. He is a moronic war criminal, but with the possible, and, and one possible addendum to that is that he started me on the path to becoming politically aware. I mean, his response to 9-11 is kind of what got me interested in the anti-war movement, which then led to Ron Paul, and then I learned about libertarianism, and then I eventually ran for office, kind of because of these things. I took out a poli-sci degree, and right up to this show, I guess. So in a weird way, I have to thank him for, for the way my life has gone. <laughs> so if you had to present kind of a steel man case like that for Wilson, what, what would you say about him? Okay, so in order to do this, I have to mentally set aside uh, most of what I actually believe about everything. But, okay, let's see. Woodrow Wilson came in at a time when, because of the natural dynamics of free markets, oligarchs were taking over the American political and economic system. And he courageously stood up to them as... Uh, an objective, unbiased reformer who just wanted what was best for the nation and what was best for democracy. And under his inspiring leadership, the United States passed the income tax amendment, writing the income tax permanently into the federal constitution, and also passed, I believe it was the 17th amendment, which made members of the United States Senate directly elected by the voters of their states rather than by their state legislatures which by definition is good because anything that makes things more democratic is automatically good. And he also gave us such wonderful institutions as the Federal Reserve, which completely ended the business cycle in the American economy for good and has done a marvelous job of preserving the buying power of the U.S. dollar for over 100 years at this point. Uh, he also had the foresight to... Unfortunately, he dilly-dallied for several years, but eventually he did the right thing and got America into World War I, because if he hadn't, the Kaiser would have eventually teleported across the Atlantic Ocean and raped everybody in America's mothers and sisters. And so he had to go to war in World War I to save democracy. Uh, he also had to invade Mexico twice to give them democracy too, and that's why Mexico is a perfect, thriving first world nation today with no problems of any sort to speak of. And uh, same thing with Haiti. He invaded and occupied Haiti, which is why that country is, uh, it has been for about a century, a perfect utopia. And um, no negative consequences 
uh, flowed from Wilson's intervention in World War I whatsoever. Um, the only minor thing we could say negative about him was that uh, he was a racist, but he was so right on everything else that we should really downplay that. And the only other negative thing I can think of to say about Woodrow Wilson is that he failed, unfortunately, to get the U.S. Senate to ratify uh, the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I. And if only he had done that, the world would have been a perfect utopia ever since. And um, if only they had listened to his wisdom about the League of Nations and the United States had joined the League of Nations, not only would World War II never have happened, but probably no other wars ever would have happened if only we had had the wisdom to, uh, for the U.S. to be smart enough to join the League of Nations. <laughs> So there you go. That was the most sarcastic steel man I've ever heard, but I loved it. So thank you. Um, <laughs> that's that's all I can do if I'm asked to steel man Wilson. Okay, so now that we've done the noble thing and kind of you know did our good faith argumentation stance, let's let's like really knock the shit out of these guys. So I'll start off with my overall kind of thesis about the Bush administration. So I kind of view him as the worst president because. He will be remembered, I believe, as the linchpin presidency in the eventual and unnecessary American imperial collapse. And, and by this, I mean he was gifted a newly emboldened economy without precedent or rival. He had an unparalleled military force. He had worldwide influence in all spheres of culture. He inherited a global tech leviathan. And he, he even had the benefit of the fiscal surpluses from the Clinton years. So in essence, he was teed up for a near-perfect presidency if he just simply took the tack of governing less. Yet at the end of it, Bush doubled the national debt, mostly on endless and rudderless wars. He had the blood of millions on his hands. He completely debased civil liberties. He protected financial criminals. He crashed the economy. Uh, but then he artificially propped it up with funny money. Uh, he ignored the rising Chinese threat. He left those disaster areas in, around New Orleans unrepaired, and he gained the resentment of nearly every nation on planet Earth. And that last point, I think that's especially important, because considering after 9-11, he had the near-unanimous empathy of every nation in the world and sky-high favorability ratings. But again, he squandered it for like neocon adventurism and energy plunder. So, and, and to that point... Uh, just into 2009, uh, just after he left, the American public were, were polled by Pew about the uh, like associative words they had with the condition of the United States. And these were actually the top responses. I got them right here. Downhill, change, decline, disappointment, turmoil, chaos, bad, disaster, scary, and greed. And by the way, again, these were Pew research polls. Um, but they showed also, uh, when they compared the polling from the two thousands to the nineties, that the Bush years were perceived to be the worst on record since they started tracking these things in the sixties. So I'll link to this in the show notes, but what their research shows was a very steep decline in general favorability towards America by Americans, no less. So I think that, you know, and, and sorry, and uh, when people were asked about the 20 teens, like going into the 20 teens, they looked infinitely brighter to everybody. So like in a sentence, I guess Bush did a complete 180 on his campaign pledges. He needlessly instigated animosity at home and abroad. 
He set the country on a path to financial ruin, and he killed a fuckload of innocent people along the way and pushed like a teetering empire off the cliff. So that's kind of my estimation of his presidency. So what would, if you had to kind of do a similar thing about Wilson, what would, you, what would be like your prosecutorial opening remarks of the Wilson presidency in, in that regard? Okay, yeah. So uh, first off, full disclosure, I would agree that uh, George W. Bush was a terrible president. And um, up until mm-hmm. recently, he was hands down the worst president of my lifetime. It really seems like the current president is attempting to dethrone him uh, in my mind for that title. But with Woodrow Wilson, I mean, even a lot of things that W did that were horrible may not have ever been possible or have happened without the legacy of Woodrow Wilson. So Woodrow Wilson. Now, it's certainly possible that these things may have come into being in some form under a different president without him. But in what actually did happen, he was the guy on on whose watch it occurred. Um, The United States. Uh, created, you know, a permanent income tax that has only risen um, in the long term in in rate ever since. Um, He participated in the bait and switch with the income tax, which by which I mean uh, the proponents of the income tax amendment sold it by saying, uh, don't worry about this income tax thing because it's only going to apply to like the richest, you know, 1% or whatever of Americans. And even they are only going to have to pay a couple percent. And then in just a few years, they started ratcheting it up in the name of war preparedness and then in the name of participating in the war. Um, under Woodrow Wilson's watch, the Federal Reserve was created, which is in many ways the heart of the current incarnation of the American empire. If it weren't for the ability of the Federal Reserve to control the currency and do things like manipulate interest rates and so forth and facilitate larger and larger government debts all the time, a lot of the worst things that the U.S. government does, both at home and abroad, would be just financially impossible to do. Um, On top of that, I would say the worst aspects of Wilson's presidency all connect to his decision to get the U.S. into World War One, And so um, because of his decision to get the U.S. into World War One in 1917, this meant that the Allied side in the war, the British and French side, were able to win an overwhelming victory, which they would not have been able to win without American support. And so without U.S. intervention in World War One, it seems overwhelmingly likely that the war would have ended either in just a draw or in a slight but not overwhelming uh, German victory, Central Powers victory. And Mm -hmm. that, I believe, would have been better, nothing's perfect, but would have been better for subsequent world history. Instead, because of Wilson's decision to get the U.S. into the war, this then allowed the Allied side to win an overwhelming victory, which then was exploited particularly by the British and French in a punitive piece against Germany. Also, by the way, it was Wilson's uh, decision more than anybody else's to get rid of the Kaiser, to to uh, require abdication and the replacement of the Kaiser's government by a more, quote unquote, democratic one. And this, I believe, set the stage for eventually the breakdown of that regime, the Weimar regime, 
in the rise of the Nazis. The rise of the Nazis were also enabled by the fact that Germany was um, given such a completely punitive, one-sided peace treaty and was treated so badly that if one was trying to um, ensure that in a few decades Germany would be spoiling for revenge, you couldn't have done much better of a job than what they actually did uh, at Versailles in 1918. And uh, in addition to that, Woodrow Wilson's decisions with regard to Russia and, you know, a lot of the worst aspects of Wilson's presidency, I would say, weren't intentional by him, but were the inevitable result of an arrogant person who believes that you can just intervene into highly complex systems and control the outcome and not have negative unintended consequences. So Wilson um, decided to intervene in Russian affairs when uh, the czar was overthrown. And initially, you had the somewhat moderate um, provisional government take over, which certainly would have been much better for Russia and the world than the Bolsheviks taking over. And it was the decision of Wilson, along with, admittedly, uh, the other allied governments, to basically kind of bribe and coerce the provisional government of Russia into keeping up the war effort against Germany. Um, this is what spelled the eventual doom for that government of Russia and allowed the Bolsheviks to triumph because the Bolsheviks, what made them ultimately able to, to win in Russia more than anything else was the issue of the war. Um, most Russian people at the time had no idea what communism even really was, but they heard the Bolsheviks saying, we're promising you, you know, land, peace and bread. And the biggest one was peace. Uh, and so had, had Wilson and the other allied powers allowed the Russian provisional government to make a peace with Germany, then it seems to me the Bolsheviks would have probably remained a fringe uh, radical minority party in Russia and more saner voices would have prevailed. And so I would argue that from Wilson's decisions, both to get the U.S. into World War I and the details of how he handled it, that it had as, as kind of ripple effects, consequences through time, uh, the rise of the Nazis, World War II, the takeover of the Bolsheviks in Russia, and from there, of course, then ripples out things like eventually the takeover of China by communists, which I don't think would have been very likely had communists not already taken over in Russia. And, you know, a whole bunch of other countries that are that are or have been communists wouldn't have been communist if Russia hadn't been hadn't become communist. And so the civil uh, sorry, civil war, the the Cold War. Um, also would not have occurred had Wilson not intervened in Russia. And and, and by the way, Wilson also, um, this isn't well known, but I am going to cover it eventually in my Wilson series. Wilson didn't just bribe mm-hmm. and coerce the, um, what was it, the, the Kerensky government into keeping up the war effort against Germany, which ultimately doomed their popularity. Uh, he also intervened militarily with U.S. troops in Russia at um, sent, sent U.S. troops into, I believe it was Archangel and Vladivostok, in coordination with, I believe, the British and Japanese, maybe the French too, I forget. And this also strengthened the Bolshevik hand because average Russian people who might have been on the fence or were even anti-Bolshevik, they see these outside imperial powers, right? The US, Japan, Britain intervening against the Bolsheviks. Well, the natural psychological tendency is for then Russians to, in their mind, identify the Bolsheviks with resisting outside invasion and occupation. And so that probably also strengthened the popularity of the Bolsheviks in Russia as well. So I could go on for like another hour, but um, 
hopefully that's uh, that's all okay to start with as far as the case against Woodrow Wilson. Oh, and and, and one more thing, I I almost uh, forgot. Even though the U.S. was only in World War One officially for about a year and a half, the Wilson administration implemented um, violations of basic civil liberties that in their directness and heavy-handedness have never been surpassed so far to this day. And uh, things like the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which were enforced against ordinary peaceful Americans just for giving speeches or for writing things the government didn't like. And so thousands of ordinary Americans were locked up in federal prison for uh, you know, crimes such as giving a speech in which they questioned U.S. US participation in World War I, or even a speech in which they questioned the legitimacy and morality of military conscription for the war to save democracy. So I think that Wilson, for just blatant heavy-handedness on domestic civil liberties, also has a record that so far hasn't been surpassed. Now, you could argue that some of our recent presidents maybe had a bigger impact, but they did it in a more kind of sneaky, behind-the-scenes, cooperating with, quote-unquote, private corporations method, whereas Wilson was just, you know, blatantly heavy-handed about it. So anyway, I guess I'll rest my case for now. Okay, so essentially Wilson was the initial domino that led to a bunch of other horrible shit. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what he did, what he did in and of itself, I would consider pretty horrible anyway. Um, but yeah, there's all these, you know, ripple effects down through time. And, you know, somebody could argue that, well, there's no way Wilson could have foreseen. Um, for sure, I don't think he intended to bring about a situation in which you know, the Nazis took over in Germany in World War II happened, or that he um, was trying to bring about a situation in which the Bolsheviks triumphed in Russia. I don't think he intended that, but I would still lay it at his, uh, lay the blame at his feet, because uh, when you decide to intervene into an extremely complex situation that you don't really understand, because you're arrogant, like Wilson, and you think you're performing God's work, like Wilson did. That's, that's by the way, one thing that Wilson and W. Bush seemed to have de definitely have in common is they both were absolutely certain in what they were doing and they both believed they were doing God's work quite literally. Um, but, you know, in my, in my view, when you arrogantly intervene into an extremely complicated uh, system or situation, when there are negative unintended consequences, those are ultimately your fault. Uh, because, yeah, you, you made the decision to be arrogant rather than humble. And uh, you made the decision to, you know, go charging off into jumping into the middle of a fight that you don't quite understand um, all of the different consequences of. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Um, so if we could get into the first kind of category I wanted to look at is just, let's just do some old fashioned ad hominem. So if I was going to say some ad hominem about Bush, I would start out by saying he was a failed businessman. He was an alcoholic, possible cocaine addict, it seems like throughout his 20s and 30s. Uh, he was a fake Texan. He was born in New Haven, Connecticut, but presented himself as this like good old boy. Uh, he seemed to base a lot of his decisions in life, like you just mentioned, on pure faith. I mean, Jesus being his alleged favorite philosopher. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was nearly incapable of producing coherent sentences, and I know that doesn't mean much considering the president now. Uh, there was this whole business about him getting kicked out of the military. Uh, he ended up being a very unwitting 
tool of powerful interests like the PNAC crowd and the military industrial complex. And finally, if you believe the King of the Hill episode, he had a very damp and limp handshake. So, <laughs> so, so what would be some ad hominem slander you'd throw at Woodrow Wilson? Okay, yeah, well, he was a um, kind of stereotypically weak, unmanly, ivory tower professor type, very much the sorts of academics that I never uh, fit in or got along with. I don't think he was ever in so much as a schoolyard fight, let alone anything approaching combat, and yet he was quite eager to deploy American military forces, not just to Europe, but also all throughout the Caribbean and Latin America during his presidency. He was an arrogant, entitled man who believed that he was always right and everybody who disagreed with him wasn't just, you know, mistaken or had a different viewpoint or opinion, but was somehow evil and standing in the way of the unfolding of God's progressive plan. Uh, he believed hardcore in absolute collectivism. He believed that there was inevitable endpoint of history towards which all societies were evolving, but towards which the U.S. and Great Britain were the most down the road at the time. That would be what he called modern democracy, which if you actually look into what it means in practice, is basically oligarchy with the occasional rubber stamping election where the voters you know, come out to ratify what they've been told by people like Woodrow Wilson they ought to vote for. Um, he also was a witting dupe, um, at least somewhat witting, I would say, maybe not entirely, but at least somewhat of a dupe of powerful forces he didn't always understand. Uh, I don't think he actually had a whole lot of understanding of things like finance, and yet he, you know, helped push through and sign into law the Federal Reserve Act and the income tax. And those were things that were, particularly the Federal Reserve Act at the time, were being pushed by the very large financial institutions that Wilson claimed he wanted to, you know, stand up to and rein in and whatever. And he didn't realize that they were actually behind it. Anybody could read the book Creature from Jekyll Island to find out that Wall Street was actually behind creating the Federal Reserve. Uh, in addition to that, he was a racist through and through. I did like five and a half hours just on that recently. And he was a eugenicist. He, he signed into law as governor of New Jersey, a eugenics bill written by a guy named Edwin Katzen Ellenbogen, who decades later shows up uh, helping the Nazis out in, I believe it was Buchenwald. Um, that was Woodrow Wilson's eugenics guy when, when he was governor of New Jersey. Let's see, uh, anything else? Oh, he was, um, he had some bizarre, um, personal relationships that seem like affairs that were not very well covered up, particularly with, um, shoot, I'm blanking on her name. I should know this. Um, but yeah. And there's all kinds of weird stuff too, where his, one of his daughters married his treasury secretary, even though he was like 20 plus years older than her. And that's just kind of a little bit weird and things like that. But, um, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, bad, I, bad dental hygiene I've heard, right? Like he had terrible teeth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, that was probably fairly common back then. Everybody, I guess, yeah, was yeah. sort of British in that regard at the time. 
So, okay, that's cool. Let's go on to like uh, their electoral records. So we have the whole controversy, obviously, about the, the hanging chads with Bush, his first election, Bush v. Gore going to the Supreme Court, and then his second re-election, which was, again, it seems like pretty narrow. I think he won by only 35 electoral votes, and that was contentious. I don't think that there was any accusations of malfeasance there, was there? Or, or were they talking about the voting machines at that time? Um, no, th there, there were some Democrats in 2004. I believe Bush's electoral margin of victory, a big part of it was Ohio in 2004. Mm -hmm. And there were questions raised by some Democrats about the voting in Ohio, because I believe it was pretty close uh, that was back when Ohio used to be a swing state. I think it's pretty consistently red at this point. But um, yeah, there were there were some kind of questions and things. And to be honest with you, um, on that particular one, I'm kind of agnostic. Like I, you know, I have no doubt that the Bush people would, uh, if they could, intervene in elections like that. But at the same time, you know, I don't know for sure. But yeah, yeah, I seem to remember Karl Rove kind of cynically pushing the gay marriage issue and in that election to kind of get red voters to come out? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. I mean, for sure, that was the era when um, the Republicans were, more so than today, uh, playing the kind of old school, moral majority, you know, Christian conservative type card. Whereas, whereas now, now, just to show how much the Overton window has been shoved, um, now it's like, they're just like, can you not try to tell my kids who are under the age of 10 that they should gender transition <laughs> like that's that's how far back they've been pushed you know yeah it wasn't even a, it was a generation ago kind of right but so what was uh Woodrow Wilson's electoral record like for his initial and then and then re-election campaign what what were the the margins like what can you tell me about that yeah, he never won an overwhelming victory to the presidency. I'm trying to remember. Um, he might have won a pretty significant victory to the New Jersey governorship. It's been so long since I covered that that I can't remember. But yeah, he only, Wilson was only elected president in 1912 because the Republican Party split between Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft supporters. And Teddy Roosevelt, when he uh, challenged Taft, you know, came out of retirement, challenged Taft for the Republican nomination. When he didn't get it, he didn't fade away uh, gracefully. Instead, he jumped over to a third party called the Progressive Party, which was basically created by a bunch of wealthy progressive uh, plutocrats for the purpose of running Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, particularly a guy named uh, George W. Perkins, who was mm -hmm. a big-time progressive businessman and literally a business partner of J.P. Morgan. Um, and, and by the way, it's not well known, but both um, J.P. Morgan himself and his partners like George W. Perkins, they love Teddy Roosevelt. So the idea that he's, you know, Mr. Anti-Corporate is just not true. Um, so what ends up happening is there's a legit three-way race in 1912. Now, this was during a time period where the Republicans tended to win the presidency pretty much, you know, just by showing up most of the time. And so for a Democrat to be elected in 1912 was kind of abnormal for that time period. And Wilson won because the 
the Republican, the normal Republican vote was split. And actually a majority of people who normally would have voted Republican voted for Teddy Roosevelt as a progressive party candidate. And then another significant fact, uh, percentage, but not a majority of them stuck with it and voted for Taft. And so this then allowed Wilson to get an electoral college majority, even though he did not win even close to a popular vote majority. And if you combine together the votes, the popular votes that uh, both Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, you know, got, in other words, if you act as if the Republican vote had stayed united in 1912, Wilson for sure loses the popular vote by a good margin. Um, whether or not he would have lost enough states to lose the electoral vote, I haven't actually sat down and like crunched all those those numbers. But I have mm-hmm. a hard time believing because you, in our system, you can win the presidency and lose the popular vote. But usually it's that only happens in cases where the popular vote is pretty darn close. Uh, it's pretty hard in our system to lose the popular vote by a, a significant margin and still win the Electoral College vote. That's, that's very hard to do. Um, and then in 1916, Wilson was reelected. And that one, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but that one, he, he did, you know, win a popular vote majority and all that. And it wasn't a three-way race that time um, in any real sense, but he still only won by a close margin. I believe the margin of victory was the state of California. So yet another thing we can blame that uh, cesspool for even over a hundred years ago. And, uh, and 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 he won that narrow victory in 1916 by running as an anti-war candidate very explicitly his main campaign slogan in 1916 was he kept us out of war which of course implies and if you keep him in the white house he'll continue to keep us out of war but of course that was not his intention and that's not what happened so that's wilson's electoral record yeah have you ever kind of played pretend and tried to imagine what would have happened in the 2000s if it had actually been President Gore as opposed to Bush? Like, do you think that the timeline would have been severely different? Or do you think that this response to 9-11 was inevitable in, in some respects? Um, That's a tough one. And I've kind of grappled with that in my own head ever since. Because, you know, Gore was very much a kind of establishment liberal Democrat. And those people do not have a good record on keeping America out of war. If anything, they have a worse record than Republicans do. I mean, establishment liberal Democrats are the ones that got America into World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, etc. And um, so I'm not, I'm not so sure that Gore wouldn't have reacted pretty strongly to 9-11 as well. Uh, both in an opportunistic sense to grab more power and also because if he didn't react super strong uh, to 9-11, he probably, you know, would become unpopular because the American people wanted blood. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's at least the possibility. I I think that the U.S. probably would have gone into Afghanistan no matter what, just because of the narrative of, oh, that's where bin Laden's hiding out. Um, The one place where I'm, I'm uncertain what Gore would have done is Iraq. Because the Bush, the Bush administration was so packed full of doctrinaire neocons. And at that time, the neocons were obsessed with Iraq. And so 
neocons for sure we're going to use just about any opportunity to go attack iraq whereas i'm not as certain the types of foreign policy people that gore would have surrounded himself with would have probably been neoliberal hawks for the most part but i'm not sure if they would have been as fixated on iraq so maybe the best case scenario you could say about gore post 9-11 would be yeah, we go into Afghanistan, we do some of that other stuff, you know, probably get some of the same sorts of um, authoritarian, you know, surveillance measures at home, but maybe not also doing Iraq. And, you know, certainly that would be in relative terms better um, to only yeah, do Afghanistan and not Iraq. Yeah, because I just, I wonder about that, like I mentioned just a second ago, the PNAC crowd that was behind Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, the project for the new American century, they were itching for wars before he even won, right? Like they were, aren't they, weren't they like a PAC that was backing the Bush campaign even before he got elected? So yeah. I wonder, I wonder what the influence would have been, because you're right, like Gore was a an establishment liberal. And at the exact same time here in Canada, uh, we had the Chrétien government, which was essentially the same thing, this kind of neoliberal globalization type liberal, uh, liberal uh, party. And we actually, we went along with you guys in Afghanistan. We sent a pretty sizable contingent of, of troops and such, but we distinctly stayed out of the Iraq war because of Chrétien, because of his, his beliefs about you know, liberal uh, internationalism in regards to foreign affairs. So it is interesting to consider what would or wouldn't have happened if you kind of look at what we did, because our liberals were very much against it. Yeah, although the the neocons are bipartisan. It's just when they're when they're nominally Democrats, they're neoliberals, but they basically believe the same stuff. And so that's the one thing that makes me think it's at least possible that Gore might have done Iraq or maybe done some some other war that, you know, didn't even happen. Mm -hmm. um, because if you look, look at, for example, Victoria Newland, right, who is one of the main people in the Biden administration behind yes. escalating yes. the Ukraine war. And she was also a mm -hmm. key player in a lot of the worst uh, foreign policy decisions of Obama's presidency, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's a Democrat but she's a super hawk like Hillary Clinton style. And uh, she's married to Robert Kagan, who is a, <laughs> you know, front bench neoconservative uh, Republican and is, you know, um, I don't think he was he was in any official capacity part of the W. Bush administration, but he definitely um, was supportive of them. And a lot of his best friends and compatriots were literally in the Bush administration. So. You know, if you had a Gore administration and you had people like Victoria Newland, even if she wasn't in it um, personally, I don't know. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. there, there is this this bipartisan uh, consensus contingent that, you know, this is why Tom Woods has the quip um, that in American politics, no matter who you vote for, you end up getting John McCain. Right. Because both parties <laughs> are infiltrated by these people and, and they're not even very popular, but somehow they are so good at playing institutional politics. You know, they the neocon and neoliberal hawk types, they're not good at winning elections when they just run openly, but they're very good at getting themselves appointed into very high positions and then using that for all it's worth. That's how they operate. 
Interesting. Okay. Let's uh let's shift over to some economic considerations here. Um so under Bush, I'd say the big one was at the end, was the TARP one bailout. So he kind of ignored the overheating of the real estate sector. And then uh, he rescued all these criminals through bailouts. And none of these people ended up being prosecuted. And I guess that's also part of the Obama administration's fault. But uh, this destroyed people's lives, their retirement savings, their 401ks. Um, He skyrocketed the debt as well. Uh, I looked up the figure. Uh, When Bush entered office, it was about $5 trillion on the national debt. And it was $10 trillion when he left. So the skyrocketing debt was by putting wars uh, on the national credit card. And I guess uh, to this day, I looked up uh, Brown University estimates that if you take the totality of the cost of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war put together, you're looking at somewhere between 5.8 and 6.7 trillion, which is a significant chunk of the, I think it's 31 trillion now. So he doubled, uh, he also, uh, during his time, he doubled the military spending. Uh, I guess it was just over $300 billion in 2001, and it was almost $700 billion by the time he left. Uh, and some also some various economic kind of data was uh, household debt under Bush grew dramatically. Uh, it went from $7.4 trillion to $14.3 trillion when he left. Um, the poverty rate increased from 11.25% up to 12.3%. Uh, his tax cuts weren't paid for. He raised spending and implemented tax cuts. And let's see, what else do we got here? Um, the CBO estimated that those tax cuts actually added approximately $3 trillion in debt over the 20-teen period. Economically, it seems like he was just benefiting his rich friends and just piling tons and tons of unnecessary debt onto the national economy. So if you had to kind of stack up Wilson's economic uh, record, what what would you say about his? Yeah, well, um, according to what I've looked at, Wilson, if you if you measure presidents by the percentage increase that happens under their watch to the national debt rather than in absolute dollars. Cause of course the dollar is constantly inflating um, yeah. <laughs> having its value. Yeah. Being, being worn away. Um, Wilson is actually the second biggest contributor to the U S national debt in percentage terms. He is surpassed only by Franklin Roosevelt. Mm, okay. So Wilson the percentage increase of the national debt under Wilson was 723%. Okay. Um, when Wilson took over the, this sounds hilarious. When Wilson took over the national debt of the United States was $2.9 billion. got to do like a doctor. Evil, <laughs> you know, pinky finger to my mouth. Um, which is hilarious. I mean, the, the Pentagon spends that in like nine seconds today, but when he left office, it was up to $21 billion. Now, again, $21 billion is a rounding error to the government of the United States today. But to go from $2.9 billion to $21 billion um, is, a, is a pretty big deal. And in addition to that, 
the income tax in the United States when he took over was zero. It was non-existent. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I forget off the top of my head what what the percentages were um, by the time he left. But, you know, not only was there an income tax, he raised it over the course of his presidency. He raised it, I believe, a total of three times. And he, in addition, in order to even with, you know, these new income taxes and constantly jacking them up and uh, expanding the national debt by over 700%, even so, the government couldn't pay for all of the costs of participating in World War One, And so there was also massive monetary inflation. I believe the gold standard was suspended. And uh, of course, the Federal Reserve, you know, helped to as much as they could back then. They didn't have all the powers and tools they have in our day, but they used what they could to try and hold interest rates down, facilitate government borrowing, and also, um, you know, in various ways, basically increase the money supply to help pay for the war. And so by the last few years of Wilson's presidency, there was significant labor inflation. There was a wartime bubble that occurred because of the easy money monetary policies and the free spending uh, fiscal policies of the wartime. And so there was a boom bust kicked off. And in the latter years of the Woodrow Wilson presidency, there was a massive increase in social problems that are clearly connected to economic uh, problems. Things like uh, massive violent race riots in many cities across America, things like massive labor violence and unrest, some of the worst in American history as far as that goes, which also led to things like the so-called Palmer Raids, uh, which were a massive erosion of civil liberties in the aftermath of World War I. And by the way, the Palmer Raids, which were um, the federal government under Wilson's attorney general, um, I forget his first name, but his last name was Palmer. Uh, I think it was A. Mitchell Palmer, if I remember right. Um, The Palmer Raids were directed against political dissidents, primarily who were immigrants, and it was all about rounding them up, arresting them, and then deporting them with, you know, basically nothing in the way of reasonable due process. And the the main guy who carried this out was none other than J. Edgar Hoover, who <laughs> would soon um, head the FBI. And so Woodrow Wilson also deserves a lot of credit. His presidency deserves credit for J. Edgar Hoover being, you know, a rising star in the U.S. uh, so-called Justice Department uh, to eventually becoming America's, you know, top KGB agent for decades and decades and decades. So um, it was just lucky. It was lucky for the American people that Wilson, of course, had his uh, massive stroke, not his first one, but his his biggest stroke in, um, I believe it was 1918 or 19, I forget when exactly that stroke happened. But so he was virtually incapacitated for the last couple of years of his presidency. And frankly, um, that was a gift. If only that would have happened in 1913, uh, things (laughs) might have been better. Because since he was basically out of action, the there was a massive economic crash and depression that happened near the end of his presidency. And presumably, if he had been, you know, at his full capacity, Wilson probably would have tried to do like an early proto-New Deal type program ah. to fix the depression. And that very likely would have made things even worse, just like the eventual New Deal actually did in the 30s. 
And um, luckily, because he was incapacitated, the federal government didn't do a whole lot to try and, quote unquote, fight the Depression. And as evidence that the American people, by the end of Wilson's presidency, were completely sick of Wilson and completely sick of progressivism, um, Warren Harding won the 1920 presidential election in a legit landslide by a much bigger margin than Wilson ever won the presidency. And Warren Harding basically campaigned as Mr. Mm Anti-Progressive. His main campaign slogan was a return to normalcy. And in his speeches, it's interesting to read his speeches because Harding is often portrayed as kind of a dummy in an empty suit and whatever. But if you read a lot of his speeches, he doesn't sound like that much of a dummy. And he said things like, this country needs to be reminded that not all social evils can be cured by legislation. And um, he said things like, you know, if we can just remember that if we leave people in society and economy and the economy alone, they actually do a lot better. This is, of course, not a quote. This is a paraphrase. But um, they actually do a lot better if you just leave them alone to run themselves. And so because Harding decided to fight, quote unquote, the Depression of 1920 with basically laissez-faire policies, with um, cutting spending policies. cutting taxes, all that sort of stuff, and otherwise not heavily intervening in the economy. Um, even though, by the way, the the crash and depression of 1920 to 21 was in its early months especially really bad. It was actually worse than the equivalent early months of the Great Depression. And yet it was over in around two years because the government, quote unquote, did nothing other than you know, cutting taxes and spending and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Wilson's uh, economic record is also not inspiring. And again, I would point to the evidence that Warren Harding won in a landslide in 1920 by running against Wilson and his legacy and running against progressivism as evidence that the American people were sick of Wilson and progressivism by 1920. Also, by the way, just as a side note, uh, one of the many people that Wilson locked up in prison for saying the wrong thing during World War One, was the socialist leader and labor activist Eugene Debs, who's my favorite American socialist. And um, when the war ended, a lot of the people who'd been locked up during the war for saying and writing things were pardoned or had their sentences commuted to time served or whatever. And Wilson, though, refused to do any of that for Eugene Debs. He hated Eugene Debs, considered him a traitor for speaking out against his war. And it was actually Warren Harding, the kind of, you know, conservative Republican who came in and, you know, did the right thing and said, and this is a a very conservative Republican, looks at this socialist leader behind bars for giving an anti-war speech several years ago and basically says, this is ridiculous. This is an elderly man with health problems. He's a nonviolent activist who gave a speech. Let's let him out. And uh, Warren Harding did the right thing and commuted uh, Eugene Debs's sentence. And I think President Harding even met with him and had a very, you know, civil conversation. So whereas Wilson, when Wilson was asked on Debs's behalf, would you consider pardoning him? Uh, Wilson said, that man will never set foot outside of prison as long as I am the president. And that's a case where he kept his promise. Okay, so you mentioned... The, the creation of the Federal Reserve, and that kind of dovetails nicely to another category we can compare these two presidents on, which is the institutional level. So I think Bush's 
most significant institutional change or creation, actually, was the Department of Homeland Security. Now, he created this in the aftermath of 9-11, and I think that this is especially prescient considering that, as Dave Smith constantly points out, the war on terror is being turned inwards now towards the American people. So it is seemingly transforming into an institution for domestic oppression. And I kind of looked at a couple of their figures. They have a $50 billion annual budget, which if you take that over the course of its life, which is, I guess this is its 20-year anniversary this year, uh, that squandered about $1.1 trillion. And if you add it all up with debt servicing added in, you're looking at about 5% of the total national debt, which to me is just a completely unforced error. It didn't need to exist. And we kind of, actually funnily, uh, last year, if you remember this creation, this uh, attempted creation of the Ministry of Truth uh, by the Biden administration with this woman, Nina Jankowitz, you remember her? Oops, sorry, I was muted there for a second. Yes, I remember. I remember that whole episode. Yeah, so the, the the disinformation board where they're going to go after malinformation, disinformation, and 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 try and crack down on free speech. So it seems like that was Bush's biggest institutional record. But you obviously brought up the Federal Reserve, so I I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Um, how inevitable was it that the Federal Reserve was going to come into existence? Like, do we know kind of where they stack up against other countries creating their own? Federal reserves and and how that fed into the the kind of the zeitgeist of the time towards central banking like was Woodrow Wilson a pioneer in that respect or was he just going along with international trends um yeah i would i would concede that that was in the zeitgeist at least in american politics at the time um and clearly you know a lot of european countries had already created a central bank in some cases a long time ago, like the bank of England, uh, I believe goes back to like 1690 or something. So, and if you look at it at America, there were multiple uh, kind of different political factions and movements pushing for some sort of a central bank or national bank. And there were a lot of differences on the details of exactly, you know, what it would be and how it would, it would work. I, I think it is very likely that within like a decade or so, sometime in the 19 teens that probably had Wilson not been president, some form of a central bank or national bank would have come into existence, you know, whether it would have been uh, better or worse in its exact details relative to what we got, who knows um, the populace, for example, and Wilson was not a populist. He was a progressive, but the populace wanted, they were sort of like the greenbackers. Um, they wanted a national bank, but that was like just directly owned and run by the government in some fashion with like direct uh, congressional oversight, maybe, and things like that. And versus what we got, which is this weird kind of quasi private thing that has essentially government powers, but it's very independent. And yet at the same time, it also, you know, its leaders are appointed by the president and it's this weird hybrid public private thing. So yeah, I mean, probably we would have got something just because there were so many different factions um, pushing for it. Uh, I would say on just the overall like institutional legacy of Wilson, 
it's true that a lot of the things as far as like government agencies and whatnot that were created during the U.S. participation in World War I, a lot of them went away pretty soon after the war uh, ended. But a lot of them came back um, within just a, a few decades under new names. And so in some ways you could blame the New Deal in mm-hmm. terms of a lot of its aspects on Woodrow Wilson, because if you, um, if, if you look at a lot of the, the kind of centerpiece New Deal programs, many of them were explicitly just adapted versions of Wilson, Wilson's world's, uh, wartime um, agencies. So, for example, the New Deal agency called the National Re- um, Recovery Administration, that was just a rebranded version of Wilson's, uh, what was it called? I think it was called the War Production Board, something like that, which mm-hmm. was his World War I agency for taking over and controlling and regulating American industry. And so in the New Deal, they brought it back and they just you know called it the National Recovery Administration because, of course, we're not supposed to be at war now in the 30s. And there were a lot of a lot of those those type of things where something that was done during the war was brought back. Um, so and I, and I can't help but uh, it's going a, a little bit off topic of your last question. But I, I want to make sure I mention um, Wilson did not preside over the creation of any new intelligence agencies. Um, it's not until World War II that we get the OSS, which then a few years after World War II gets turned into the CIA. But there were already um, there were already multiple intelligence institutions in the U.S. government at the time. There was uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and there was Army Intelligence, and there was, I believe at the time it was just called the Bureau of Investigation, the, the precursor to the FBI, which was from, it, from its inception kind of like a domestic intelligence agency. And all of those, including the Office of Naval Intelligence and um, Army Intelligence, they did domestic surveillance during World War I. Okay. Not, not just spying on, you know, uh, enemy militaries or whatever like that. They did that too. But most Americans don't know that, like, there was military intelligence during World War I was surveilling American citizens at home. Um, in, in particular, they, they were often operating, like, for example, the Office of Naval Intelligence would have agents and informants operating in, say, an American shipyard to rat on if any of the union workers um, didn't support the war or, you know, whatever like that, or, or wanted to strike and potentially slow down war production. So Wilson did a lot more domestic police state surveillance type stuff than most people um, realize. And also, I can't help but mention uh, that Wilson, during World War I, you mentioned the Ministry of Truth. During World War I, of course, Wilson created the Committee on Public Information, which I'm going to cover in depth in my podcast eventually. And yes. this, this agency had a huge amount of power of censorship, number one. And number two, they also had all the power and resources to create and coordinate propaganda operations in the United States. And so that's like the original American Ministry of Truth is Woodrow Wilson's Committee on Public Information. And a lot of individuals who have long careers from then on in American propaganda first cut their teeth. Like, for example, Edward Bernays, the the famous guy who eventually writes a book on propaganda. 
Uh, Edward Bernays got his first his first time working as a government propagandist was he worked for the Committee on Public Information as a young man. And he later, of course, you know, does all kinds of work for corporate clients and then um, works for the U.S. government again for propaganda during World War Two. And as late as the 1950s, he uh, Edward Bernays was helping the CIA do propaganda and overthrow the government of Guatemala as part of um, Operation PB Success to overthrow the democratically elected government of Guatemala in 1953. So, um, yeah, as far as domestic police state stuff, surveillance, propaganda, um, all these sorts of things, you can trace pretty much everything back to Woodrow Wilson. Um, Even though some of his programs and agencies and whatever went away after the war, a lot of them came back, but in even worse form in some cases years later. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. And okay, we can kind of shift over into the foreign affairs section now. Now, I, obviously, I'm, I'm going to have to bring up the big ones, the Afghan war and the Iraq war, uh, massive violations of international law, the Nuremberg precedents, the UN charter. Uh, they left behind a power vacuum in these places that led to the rise of ISIS. Uh, they might, and, and all these policies that Bush enacted might have actually led to increased terrorism through blowback. Um, you know, the religious minorities in those countries were left to die essentially by in between the warring factions. And uh, I, I don't know what else to say besides you could probably peg it at over a million deaths in total. Uh, I don't know precisely how many people uh, died because of Woodrow Wilson's uh, administration. I think that the American casualties from World War One was what about 110,000 soldiers were killed um something like that i you know maybe maybe a bit higher but yeah it's um i I believe it's usually estimated or calculated as certainly less than two hundred thousand. yeah so i'm kind of what i'm going for is i think that the bush administration has the sheer amount of blood on its hands i know that you kind of uh laid out your case that the wilson administration eventually leads to the nazis to some degree so, but direct deaths, I think you can kind of chalk up that Bush is worse on this file. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're looking at only kind of like first order effects, I suppose. And to be honest with you, I have no idea how one could. It's possible that by sending the American Expeditionary Force over to Europe in 1917, 1918, that that the casualties on the ground in Europe to increase in uh, in the latter, okay. you know, years of the war. I don't know though how you could calculate that and say for sure. Like even if you saw um that the death rate in World War One started to go up in Europe uh once American troops started arriving, like how could you prove that all of that or what percentage of that is directly attributable to the arrival of Americans and the presence of Americans on the battlefield. Like that, that's, that's what makes it tricky. So it's possible that by sending and and keep in mind too, that all the other belligerents in world war one by 1917, 1918 were like at their last, at the end of their rope. Um, They were exhausted in every possible way. Morale was down. The willingness of troops to charge across no man's land was down. There were significant mutinies in a lot of the European armies by the latter part of the war. And, um, you know, 
particularly the central powers, but even to some extent the British and French were often starting to run low on equipment and ammunition and whatever. And so here comes Team America with this big, you know, inexperienced but fresh army that still is mm-hmm. like, you know, right off the boat, ready to go, gung-ho, and and is also the most superbly equipped and best fed army in the entire war. And so it's at least possible in my mind that American, the presence of American troops um, coming into the Western front may have caused an increase in casualties and deaths in the last year or so of the war. But again, how you could measure it precisely and say, oh yes, exactly, you know, 40,000 additional uh, Europeans died because of American intervention or whatever it is. Um, yeah, hard to say. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. I didn't really consider that because on, on the one hand, with, with Bush, you could point out that like an overwhelming majority, I would say upwards of 75% of the blood on his hands comes from just pure citizens. Like they're just people caught in the crossfire of, the, of, of his terror wars. Whereas, but at the same time with Wilson, a lot of these guys were conscripted, correct? Yeah, the vast majority of Americans who fought in World War One were conscripts. Yeah, so they didn't have a choice in the matter either. Um, okay, well, another kind of foreign affairs issue I wanted to ask you about with Wilson was, uh, okay, well, with Bush, he was very much involved with the World Trade Organization in getting Chinese relations normalized and incorporating them into the liberal economic structure. So at that time with Wilson... Do you kind of know what the state of his foreign policy was with regards to the rest of the world? I know that World War I takes up a big chunk of that end part, but up until World War I, what was his foreign policy agenda, essentially? He was very interventionist in the Western Hemisphere. Um, prior to World War I, he generally followed most presidents before him in being fairly restrained on what he was doing outside of the Western Hemisphere. You could even make a case that he was um, somewhat of an improvement for the Philippines, which mm-hmm. the U.S., of course, had taken over the Philippines in 1898, fought a nasty counterinsurgency war to crush resistance to the American takeover. Um, and so and by Wilson's presidency, the insurgency in the Philippines was basically done. Um, but the U.S. still ruled the Philippines as an imperial, you know, colony until after World War II. And, you know, my understanding is that, and I haven't done too much digging into this yet, but my understanding is that Wilson did make things a little bit better for the Filipinos in terms of giving them a little bit more uh, internal self-government and things like that. On the other hand, though, the, the United States uh, maintained a uh, clandestine kind of uh, secret intelligence police force type operation in the Philippines for many years um, after Wilson even. And um, this is actually where a lot of U.S. police state stuff first got rolled out. And uh, you can read um, Policing America's Empire by the great historian Alfred McCoy to find out how much of American police state methods and so forth actually came from the American experience in the Philippines. It's it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he was a slight improvement there where he... There's an aspect of his presidency that often gets overlooked, even by Wilson biographers, that I'm going to be covering in painstaking detail in a bonus episode for uh, supporting listeners of my show. 
which is his interventionism in Latin America and the Caribbean. Wilson was very much a paternalistic, um, liberal interventionist when it comes to foreign policy. And so he sends American troops into countries like Mexico, um, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and several others, uh, intervening into their their affairs, intervening into their politics, their civil wars, whatever it is. And he does it under the auspices of, oh, I'm not being aggressive. I'm not being an imperialist. I'm coming in as a benevolent, you know, progressive reformer trying to help these, these poor people. And there's often a not very concealed twinge of paternalistic racism in this idea. Uh, Famously, Famously, when he sent American troops in to intervene in the Mexican Civil War, he said something, and this is almost an exact quote, I'm going to teach those Mexicans to elect good men. So, Yeah, okay. Can I quickly interrupt? Because this kind of, maybe there is some overlap between Wilson and Bush in this regard, because part of the Bush doctrine was uh, spreading democracy through the barrel of a gun. Almost like it wasn't... specifically uh paternal well i guess it was sort of paternalistic i don't know if it was necessarily racist but it was yeah we're gonna make you guys civilize yourselves and it it seems like woodrow wilson had a similar kind of idea yeah yeah i i i would characterize george w bush as a progressive even though most people wouldn't um including Mm -hmm. probably bush himself But if you look at the contents of what he did and a lot of his speeches and whatever, it's basically an echo of sort of a combination of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, the original uh, progressive presidents. And, you know, if you I used to tell this to my students when I was still teaching that I, I would read them, you know, a big excerpt from Wilson's World War One speech, the speech that he gives to Congress asking for the declaration of war. And this is the famous one where he says, we're going to war to save democracy, to make the world safe for democracy. And, you know, he goes on and on and on about, how, oh, we're not fighting for any selfish reasons. We're fighting to defend democracy and spread human rights around the world. And he actually says in the speech, we will make the world itself at last free. So if you if you take Woodrow Wilson's World War I speech, I used to tell my students, Look up any speech by any president after Woodrow Wilson who's, you know, going to war, who's explaining why he's sending American troops into harm's way somewhere. And you'll find that in many cases, they're almost plagiarizing Woodrow Wilson um, from that speech of, of making the world safe for democracy. And absolutely, George W. Bush, if you look at his um, most of his you know, war and foreign policy statements after 9-11 through the rest of his presidency, he sounds like. Woodrow Wilson. He's got this, you know, very, if you just look at the superficial surface of it, it's, um, you know, very noble sounding, very humanitarian, Mm -hmm. human rights, whatever. But it's ultimately, yeah, we're, we're going to war. And um, in my view, it's, you know, it's a justification for uh, imperialism, even if the president delivering the speech believes it and doesn't, you know, is, is so self-blinded that he doesn't realize what he's really doing. Um, nonetheless, that's what it is. It's, it's a, it's a justification. And it's so that the, the kind of more liberal type people, it gives them an excuse to be pro-war without sounding like Teddy Roosevelt or John McCain. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we're just, you know, we're only doing, we're reluctantly going to war to save human rights, you know, to make sure that uh, 
whatever Afghan school children can gender transition if they want to, or who knows what, you know? (laughs) Well, I actually, actually, that's interesting. You mentioned justifications because we know obviously that the Bush invasion of Iraq was completely constructed on false pretenses, these weapons of mass destruction. But I wanted to ask you about the entry of the United States into World War One, And from what I gather, it seems like he was presenting it to the Congress uh, as this sort of necessity because they were, one, the, the central powers were going to try and create a theater in Mexico. for So Mexico was going to join the war and try and attack the United States. And then this unrestricted submarine warfare that was going on in the North Atlantic. Now, First of all, am I accurate about those? And then second, were those justifiable reasons or was this complete fiction? Okay, yeah. Those were the two kind of immediate causes as belli uh, that Wilson, you know, cited and seized upon to justify going to war for sure. The the so-called Zimmerman telegram and the Germany's decision a few months before that to resume unrestricted Uh, U-boat warfare. Now, you know, both of those things, like they were true in the sense that they were things that happened. And the Zimmerman note was legitimate. I believe Zimmerman himself, the German uh, foreign minister, even admitted that it was real, um, not a fabrication, which I wouldn't have put it past. Basically, it was British intelligence that intercepted the Zimmerman telegram and then eventually shared it with the U.S. government because they knew that it would push American opinion more, you know, pro-war. Mm-hmm. And and so British intelligence did that. Now, given all that I know of British intelligence and how they've operated, particularly in the 20th century, I wouldn't put it past them to have fabricated something like that. But it looks like in this case, it wasn't even a fabrication. Now, it was a ridiculous uh unrealistic scheme on the part of the German government. I mean, Mexico, I believe, was still in the middle of like a civil war at the time, number one. And number two was, you know, a much weaker, poorer country than the United States by every measure. And so, you know, the idea that Mexico realistically was going to take Germany up on that offer um, was was completely, you know, insane. And, um, you know, oh, they're going to reconquer like Texas and Arizona or whatever. Like, yeah, good luck. Um and, you know, so, so Mexico was never going to seriously entertain uh, taking Germany up on that. And for that matter, the Germans had no capability at the time to really help Mexico anyway. I mean, that's what they were saying. They were like, oh, yeah, we'll help you. Um, but, you know, Germany was tied up fighting for their existence in Europe, surrounded by enemies. The idea and, and because of the British blockade, they were running out of ammo and food. And so the idea that Germany in that situation is somehow like magically going to send, you know, huge amounts of military hardware and maybe even troops to North America to help Mexico reconquista Arizona and New Mexico. um, It's just a fantasy. I mean, it's right up there with the American right wingers who are worried like China is going to somehow conquer uh, North America next week or something. Um, But, you know, so so it's ridiculous to if you were an American at that time, it was ridiculous to worry that that actually had a chance of ever happening. Um, You know, whether just the mere fact that Germany tried to do something that stupid justifies going into the war. That's a different question. I would still say no. Um, But, you know, you could at least say, well, the fact that they were trying to gin up this alliance against us in our own backyard uh, makes them bad or whatever. Uh, Maybe, I don't know. It's, It's like if somebody who is in a, 
you know, somebody who's physically in the same situation that Stephen Hawking was in uh, before mm-hmm. he died is like threatening to personally come and kick your ass. Um, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be like, well, that gives me the right to go over and just shoot that guy because he's threatening me. I'd be like, well, I don't know. I'm not too worried. Um, you know, unless he builds a robot to come after me or whatever, probably I don't really have to worry about his stupid <laughs> threats or whatever. Um, and then as far as the U-boat warfare, I mean, that's, that's, it, it was actually hitting American ships and whatever, but at the same time, even that is a more morally complex situation than most people then or now understand. Um, because Germany only started, it's true that their U-boat campaign as they operated it was in violation of international law at the time. But what most Americans and probably most people in allied countries like Britain and Canada don't know is that Germany only started its U-boat warfare after the British had already been instituting an illegal, by the standards of international law at the time, a starvation blockade against Germany for like a year. And so it wasn't the Germans who started breaking international law on the high seas during World War I. It was the British who did it first and the Germans only retaliated after a year. And um, also the Lusitania, when the Lusitania sank, and the Lusitania was a legitimate target of war. It was carrying huge amounts of war contraband munitions at the time put there by, by the British. Um, the, the Germans were so worried in 1915 in the aftermath of the Lusitania, they were so worried about America getting into the war and so desperate to avoid that, that they actually put the U-boat campaign on pause for almost two years um, as far as unrestricted you know, U-boat campaigning against uh, civilian cargo ships and whatever. And they only re-unleashed the U-boats in early 1917 out of desperation because they were like literally starving to death. Most Americans don't know uh, that literally hundreds of thousands of German civilians died during and after World War I as a direct consequence of the British illegal starvation blockade against Germany, which kept out even food and medicine. Um, And so, you know, yeah, Germany did re-unleash the U-boats. And Wilson's stance was that American ships should have the right to go anywhere, even right into the middle of a war zone, and no one should mess with them. By the way, even if, for example, there's an American cargo ship carrying nothing but military hardware headed toward Liverpool, um, that that's that the German submarines have no right to target that ship under those circumstances, which to me just is, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> well, I guess I guess what Noam Chomsky would he, he used to say something like you know Amer- America assumes that it's indigenous everywhere so <laughs> yeah they're allowed to do these things right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Americans have, it's just like the same thing with um, with Ukraine today right where you know if you if you kind of disconnected any personal um, uh, feelings or biases and looked at it like from a, a totally neutral bird's eye perspective and you said okay the U.S. is shipping like huge amounts of military hardware into Ukraine um, and Russia's at war with Ukraine. Does Russia, should Russia have the right to try and if they're able to take out that American military hardware en route before it's in Ukraine? And now, you know, whether that's a good idea or not is a different question, but like morally, you know, would Russia be justified in saying, hey, that's weapons on the way here that's going to be used against our soldiers Therefore, we have a right to, you know, attempt to stop it from getting here if we can. Um, but, you know, the, the American empire learned hypocrisy and, uh, and can't from the British empire. Learn from the best, right? Where, you know, you do things that 
you would never, ever, ever tolerate, uh, you know, a rival doing. But when you do it, it's it's fine and dandy. So, yeah, for Wilson to ship huge amounts of supplies to Britain and France during the war while America was still, quote unquote, neutral, like, oh, that's fine. But if the Germans try and, you know, sink an American ship full of guns on its way to Britain, oh, that's evil. You know, um, it's it's very, very hypocritical. Yeah, so that that was an excellent uh, excellent uh summarization. Uh I kind of the last category I kind of wanted to hit on was in terms of the law. Uh now for Bush, it seems like his biggest legal addition was this Patriot Act and this kind of tendency towards increased surveillance, intelligence gathering, uh the border security, the financial investigations. Um, and then coupled with that, I guess, or tangential to that is the illegal rendition and torture that he enacted under his watch, I think under executive order, if I'm correct. Um, and of, of which it was eventually found to be uh, unconstitutional. And I think Obama actually in 2009 issued executive orders banning the use of the of the waterboarding techniques and the sleep deprivation and, and things of these nature. So it seems like that le- it could lead to some very dark places if it's pursued again. Like you said, some of the Woodrow Wilson stuff came creeping back later on, decades later. So for this precedent to have been broached so blatantly. I feel like this sets up for some very evil things in the future. Um, but in terms of what Wilson did at the legal level, um, I know you mentioned the Espionage Act. Uh, did he create it? Well, I don't think he created that. Did he, did he create it or was he expanding upon the Alien and Sedition Acts from centuries earlier? Um, no, what happened was the the old Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 that were passed under John Adams, they went away um, under Jefferson's presidency, I, I believe. Okay. That, yeah. I believe in the case of, of those laws, they actually had a sunset clause built in of, you know, this will expire in X number of years if it's not explicitly renewed. And Jefferson was opposed to those laws. And so I believe once Jefferson was in the white house, he just let them expire and, and that was it. Um, so yeah, it was the, um, I always get confused which one was passed which year i believe the espionage act was passed by congress and signed and by the way wilson requested these acts um these didn't just just get passed while he was president like he was pushing congress to do it um actually in his in his speech where he uh, says we're going to war to save democracy and all that basically asking for a declaration of war in his in that initial war speech he already had um requests of powers and things he wanted to to do the war. And so I believe in that exact same speech, he called for conscription to be instituted, which it quickly was. Mm-hmm. And he also called for um, measures to be passed basically to suppress dissent, which quickly were passed. So yeah, that wasn't just something that happened, you know, before him that he picked up and used or something that passed on his watch. Like the Federal Reserve, you could argue, you know, was kind of or the income tax is maybe even a better example. The income tax amendment passed on his watch and he fully supported it and happily signed it into law, but it wasn't like he was the main force behind that. That was a movement that had been building for you know decades, honestly. Um, whereas with the, I believe the Espionage Act was first in 1917, the Sedition Act was second in 1918. 
uh, could be vice versa, but I think that's how it is. And, and basically these laws contained clauses that were interpreted and enforced to mean that it was okay for the government to suppress dissent. Um, one of them, I think, think it was the Espionage Act has a passage that says that it is a federal crime to willfully obstruct the recruitment or enlistment service of the United States military, something like that. And now, is, is that the one relating to don't yell fire in a theater? Yes, yes, yes. Um, that basically, you know, you might look at a clause like that and go, well, Maybe they just mean like it's illegal if you're a, I don't know, a German saboteur and you infiltrate the United States and you go to a draft office and light it on fire or, you know, try to like blow up a military base to prevent recruiting. But of course, that's not, I'm sure they would go after you for that too. But of course, hardly any of stuff like that ever even remotely happened. But um, they interpret it to mean uh, free speech could potentially, because, and this is what they busted Eugene Debs for. Um, for giving an anti-war speech in 1918. Um, basically, their interpretation was, oops, I think my internet dropped out for a second and came back. Um, their interpretation was that if you give an anti-war speech, there might be young men in the audience who hear your anti-war message. And they might, after hearing your speech, be persuaded and decide to, I don't know, dodge the draft. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, if you give an anti-war speech, you are obstructing the recruiting for the United States military. Therefore, you are guilty of a federal crime. You can go to prison for giving a speech. And um, I think, if I remember right, the Espionage Act no longer is on the books, I believe. Um, I don't remember. If, if I'm right about that, I don't recall when it was done away with, whether it was done okay. away with right after the war or, or later. But the Sedition Act is still on the books, and the Sedition Act is the act under which um, Edward Snowden would be tried if he was ever stupid ah. enough to come back to America. And There's I believe, another Bush connection, yeah. Yeah, okay. and, and I yeah. believe uh, Woodrow Wilson's Sedition Act is also what Julian Assange is being threatened with, even though he's not an American mm-hmm. citizen and he didn't do anything. I mean, I don't think he committed any crimes at all, but even if you think he committed any crimes— um, he's not an American citizen and he didn't do any of them on American soil. So I don't know where the hell the United States gets jurisdiction, you know, um, like, does this mean that, a, that if, I don't know, a Brazilian commits a certain kind of crime in Brazil, um, that American police can just go down there and drag him off uh, to an American prison. That seems kind of bizarre. Um, but <laughs> I guess that depends on how close the, their regime is with yours, right? I, I, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, Wilson's definitely got a lot to answer for as far as that. And uh, yeah, as, as you were mentioning before, there were several Supreme Court cases that came out of these laws being enforced to uh, criminalize a speech the government didn't like. And the Supreme Court, by this time in American history, you know, you had had eight years of, of Teddy Roosevelt being president earlier. And then you had, you know, by the latter part of World War I, Wilson had been president for about six, seven years. And so as a result of that, most of the Supreme Court justices by 1917, 1918 were progressives. And one of the beliefs of progressives in American politics is that the Constitution doesn't have any fixed, timeless meaning, that the Constitution needs to be able to be interpreted in light of changing circumstances. And so this is the 
argument that allows Supreme Court justices to make convoluted arguments that even though the First Amendment seems very straightforward, that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, well, except in wartime, it's an emergency, circumstances are different, therefore, speech that normally would be okay when everything's happy and mellow and peaceful is uh, potentially very dangerous during wartime. And so the rules are different. And so therefore, the First Amendment doesn't really mean what you think it means when there's a war or other emergency. And there were multiple Supreme Court cases where the court basically ratified the government violating the First Amendment and throwing people in prison for speeches and for writing things and whatever. Um, I know one of the one of the Supreme Court cases that's the most famous in this regard is called Shank versus United States. And this was um, a case that came about because there was a, a socialist anti-war activist group that were handing out flyers in some, you know, busy area or whatever. And they were, I don't even think they were across the board anti-war. They were just anti-draft, I think, uh, flyers, mm-hmm. you know, urging young men. And by the way, making what I would consider a very solid moral and constitutional case that the draft is is uh, wrong and unconstitutional. I would actually agree with the case they made. But, you know, just handing out little flyers and got arrested and ultimately it was appealed, went to the Supreme Court. And yeah, that's where the Supreme Court, I think that's the case with the fire in the crowded theater thing. Basically, the Supreme Court said that during wartime, um, all the rules are different and the Bill of Rights doesn't really apply. And they said that um, in wartime, speech which normally might be tolerated uh, could potentially constitute a clear and present danger to the United States. And therefore, the imprisonment of these peaceful anti-war activists passing out flyers was upheld as constitutional and legit. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that work their way into. And then, you know, because of the way our legal system is, the precedent counts for a lot. And so, you know, you get all these cases that uphold Woodrow Wilson's authoritarianism in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, he, he Wilson didn't do anything comparable to um, uh, authorizing torture, as far as I know. And I agree with you. That's a that's a horrific uh, legacy of the Bush administration. Like it's it's one thing if you're doing torture and you're doing it, but you're doing it totally secretly because, you know, it's wrong and illegal and you'll get in trouble if yeah. you get caught like that. That's horrible enough. But at least it shows that the system still has integrity because the people doing the torture are like trying to hide it. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. you know, when you when you kind of get it out in the open and you get caught doing it and then nothing bad happens, it's like, um, you know, that, that that sets a whole bunch of dangerous uh, precedents. But I will say the one thing the Wilson administration does have uh, on their record somewhat similar is during World War One, there were a lot of sometimes organized, sometimes kind of ad hoc, uh, violent pro-war like mobs, in some cases, literal lynch mobs that would spring up and would like, you know, beat half to death or torture uh, people who gave anti-war speeches or sometimes people who didn't even do that. Sometimes people who just, you know, there there was a huge German-American immigrant population in the U.S. at the time. And there were cases where, you know, some guy who lives in a German neighborhood in like St. Louis or somewhere, um, the might just say good morning to their neighbor in German, you know, because it's a neighborhood where mm-hmm. everybody speaks German in the same way that there's lots of neighborhoods and lots of cities now in America where people mostly speak Spanish day to day. 
And so some guy says good morning to his neighbor in German and some, you know, patriotic Anglo happens to hear it. And next thing you know, there's a violent mob beating that guy uh, half to death. And, um, you know, Wilson never explicitly called for that sort of thing. But for sure, when it was happening during World War I, um, rarely, if ever, was anybody prosecuted for those sorts of incidents. And in the rare cases when, you know, they were actually arrested and prosecuted, they would be just, you know, let loose one way or another, um, pretty much scot-free. And so Wilson, um, you know, at least under his watch, it was enabled for violent, quote-unquote, patriotic uh, mobs to go after um, anti-war people and even people who just seemed a little too German. Well, this has been an incredibly great interview, CJ. I thank you for it. But I do have one final question for you. Now, back during the 2004 presidential election, a lot of it seemed to be framed around this idea of who would you rather have a beer with? And that seemed to indicate how you were going to vote. So if you had to choose between having a beer with Bush or Wilson, who would you choose? Oh, that one's easy. I would definitely rather have a beer with Bush. Bush, um, for all of his many faults, he seems like in just sort of a personal one-on-one interaction kind of a situation would be the more charming and gregarious sort of a guy. I think Bush and Wilson are opposite in that regard. Like Bush usually was not very good at giving a big uh, speech on TV or to a crowd or whatever, but it seems like he was usually, and I actually have some family uh, members who worked with him at high levels. We'll just leave it at that. Um, one family member anyway. And um, everything that I know is that actually when he was in a one-on-one or a small group social situation, he was not the bumbling mouthed idiot that he often was on TV in a big speech that he was actually very charming and whatever like that. Wilson is the other way around. I think Wilson seems like, you know, he was a much smoother, more articulate public speaker, but not nearly as charming and friendly and gregarious in like a having a beer social situation or whatever. So yeah, that one's an easy one to answer. So do you have any final plugs or anywhere you want to direct the listeners to? Uh, nope. Other than um, anybody listening who's not familiar with, with my podcast, just look up Dangerous History Podcast wherever it is you like to consume your audio podcasts or go to dangerousherystorypodcast.com for my website and yeah my gigantic series on the horrors of the life and career of Woodrow Wilson is still ongoing it's literally been a labor of hate that I've been working on for years and I last month put out part 10 in that series and I would estimate I probably still have another five or six parts to go and each of these installments in the Woodrow Wilson series is multiple hours long Uh, super in-depth detail. And I will, as I mentioned earlier, be putting out a bonus episode just for supporters of my show, all about Woodrow Wilson's so-called banana wars, which is all those little wars, didn't seem little to the people on the receiving end of them, that he did in places like Haiti and Dominican Republic and Mexico and all that. So that's going to be coming up hopefully in the next few weeks. I'm hard at work behind the scenes on that. Yeah. And of course, you know, thank you uh, for the invitation uh, to come on. Um, your show is great. You've done some really cool stuff so far. So yeah, been great to talk to you. 
Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. I'm Jackie Moranti, and I produce a podcast called Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight. Have you ever read or watched any post-apocalyptic fiction? Were you one of the first people to see The Road or I Am Legend when they came out? Do you wonder if those things could really happen? Could the world as we know it be toppled by a disease, a global crisis, or a natural disaster? I assure you that it could. My show talks about the precursors to apocalyptic events. I like to call it pre-apocalyptic nonfiction. I talk about history and how we never learned from it. The present and how we tend to ignore every warning sign. And the future and what it will mean if we don't take care of our resources. The hands of the doomsday clock have been set at 100 seconds to midnight for three years now. Can we make the hands turn back? Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, I'm Kona Gallagher. And I'm Ethan Flick. We're the husband and wife team behind the True Crime Podcast, and then they were gone. We're a weekly show that covers unsolved missing persons cases. These are cases that you, the listener, can have an impact on. That's right. Each week, we bring you a new case of someone who has gone missing and needs their story told. Some of the people you may have heard of, like Kristen Smart or Braceless Pisa. But we also bring you missing people of color and other cases that haven't gotten the mainstream attention that they deserve. We cover the missing person's life and delve into the investigation and media coverage. One thing that we've learned in the nearly two years of doing this podcast is that a lot of these cases could be solved if pressure was put on the investigative agencies to do more. Our hope is that by getting these stories out there, you'll help us put that pressure on them. So come along with us as we tell these stories, and maybe you hold the key to bringing someone home. And then they were gone as a proud member of the Darkcast Network and Spreaker Prime. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Ashley, a true crime fanatic. I'm Dan, and I don't know anything about true crime. Together, we host Fuck That, a true crime podcast that covers cases that highlight important topics that are often overlooked, such as wrongful convictions, domestic violence, and social inequities, sprinkled in with the occasional case with spooky themes. If you are looking for your next true crime fix delivered candidly with a hint of sarcasm, you can listen and subscribe to bi-weekly episodes of Fuck That wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter at FThatPod and at FThat underscore pod on Instagram. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, true crimes of the LGBT. My episodes focus on crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. I've covered cases you probably have heard of, such as Matthew Shepard, Brandon Tina, and the Orlando Pulse nightclub massacre, as well as some lesser known cases like the murder of Ray Hainish, the Australian gay beat murders, and the suspicious disappearance of Lisa Lynn Stone. I cover cases brought to me by listeners like Penny Brummer, who I believe was wrongfully convicted, taboo cases such as lesbian corrective rape and murder in South Africa, and pray the gay away camps. I discuss gay serial killers, women who pretend to be men to hook up with other women, and trans murders. I'm opinionated and uncensored. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, 
but surely I'm someone shot at tequila. No matter what your gender or orientation in life might be, please join me as I tackle rainbow crimes in search of unicorn justice. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. Ooh, I've been dying to try this place. Oh my god, me too. I've heard such good things about it. Welcome to the Crime Diner. I'm Cindy. I'll be cooking for you this evening. Here are your menus. Ooh, what are you thinking about getting? I don't know. Murder with a side of cannibalism? What about you? Ooh, that sounds good. I'm torn between historical mayhem and the social injustice, maybe? Oh. I just want to let you know that each episode comes with dinner, dessert, and a specialty drink chosen by yours truly. Wine Dine Storytime has had a makeover, and we invite you to slide into the booth with us at the Crime Diner, where each week we will discuss a crime over dinner, drinks, and dessert. See you there! <laughs>